Um, at the end today, I want to uh, share with you some books that you may be interested in reading for further edification. The one is called Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin, engaging five contemporary claims. Secular Creed. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, no relation to Sarah. Um, the other is called Strange New World by Carl Truman. The subtitle is How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Very uh, contemporary for today. And the other is, and this is uh, more academic reading, and so it's written in an academic way, which means a lot more words aren't used than necessary. But it's called How to Be Secular. Um, by James A. Smith. I'm sorry, How Not to Be Secular, How Not to Be Secular. It's a reaction, a response to a writing by Charles Taylor. Um, but um, anyway, three books we're going to talk about later. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that you are with us, that your word, again, is living and active, that I can always trust it. We can always trust it when we go to you and know that you are going to inspire and teach beyond my words. I pray you do so today. Through Christ I pray. Amen. In John chapter 8, Jesus is addressing a group of worldly people. Yes, those worldly people have many degrees in religion, but they are more conformed to the world than they are to the mind of God. These religious people love the world more than they love God. They live in the lower story, stuck in what we call the lower story, much more than living in upper story attitude. Toward life, And so Jesus does not mince words in John 8, 44, when he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. This is not Jesus, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, <clears throat> he was, uh, Jesus continues, your father, the, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells lies, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can you imagine that Jesus showing up on the Oprah Winfrey show someday? Don't think he'd go over so well. We're not used to hearing that kind of vitriolic language from gentle people, are we? Sure, you turn on Fox News or turn on MSNBC and you have people that are, you know, throwing, you know, grenades into rooms all the time. But it, it's not unusual to hear politicians, you know, speak with such acidic tongues as well. But when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, you know, and Satan is a liar, the father of lies, it just seems a a skosh out of character, enough to make you take a double take. It's kind of like, okay, this is really strong language. Jesus must have a, a reason. Wow, Jesus loves, and yet he uses this kind of language. Jesus wants to get our attention that Satan really is a liar, and we need to take that seriously. Let me talk today about three lies that Satan uses, three types of lies. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every proud thing that raises up against the knowledge of God, and we take every, cap every thought captive to obey Christ. The only defense against Satan's lies are to take 
Satan's lies, identify them and surrender them to make them obedient to the truth of Jesus. One of the ways that Satan lies is he tries to raise doubts about things where God's been clear. We see this first, of course, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? One of the first ways that Satan deceives is by throwing out the suggestive doubt. Did God really say? You know, I mean, do you really think that God meant that? See how clever Satan is? If he were to directly attack God and say to Eve, oh, God didn't tell you you couldn't eat from the tree. She'd say, well, yeah, he did. But he just kind of raises the question, did he really say? Is that what he really meant? Kind of like, if God were really a loving God, uh, do you think he wouldn't want you to be happy? I mean, if the fruit of that tree is going to enrich your life, I mean, do you really think that God would have made that tree if he didn't want you to enjoy it, to have it for yourself? Here's the warning. Beware any time you start doubting where God's truth has been clear. There's so many truths. That's why we're greatly benefited to live in the 21st century. We can look back <clears throat> to see what was taught in the Bible and how it was taught by the followers of Jesus and by the followers of the followers of Jesus. And we can see what was believed and taught throughout the centuries and times when it went astray, but then repentance came back and they went back to the original teachings, to the original practices. But we're not, and if we're going astray from those, we can say, hey, wait, we are, we are just, this is so far off. Anything that's ever been believed or taught in Orthodox Christianity. See, the Bible is clear in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But Satan whispers, do you really think that God could love somebody like you? The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Satan doesn't say, oh, God won't forgive you. He just says, do you think that God is going to forgive all the things you've done? could forgive everything, even the worst things you've done. Satan says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. What Satan do? He, he, he didn't show up in 1920 and start telling people transgenderism is good. You know, homosexuality is normal just gradually started asking questions. Do you really think, did God really say, and now we get to 2022 and it's like, is gender really that simple? Is it really simple, that simple that there's only two genders? 
So people who are proud and think they're advanced say, oh, we know there's more genders because we were smarter than they were. Luke chapter 144, Elizabeth says to Mary, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside my inside me. Say this, is it really a baby? Are you sure it's not just a clump of cells in the mother? A second way that Satan lies, the first way he does it is just by the, the, the cynical sowing of doubt. Another thing he does is he just makes evil look good. Again, we see this in the garden. God says, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. When you do, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, 4, Satan says, no, you will not certainly, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What a great appeal. Satan appeals to the good. How good it would be for you to be more like God. Isn't that what you want to be? I mean, how good would, how wonderful to be able to know the difference between good or evil. What's so wrong with wanting to know the difference between good or evil? And notice he makes a pragmatic argument. If it weren't ungodly, if it weren't ungodly, I mean, why would it be so good? (laughs) So often, that's what Satan does. He says, hey, don't think about the principles. Don't think about right or wrong. Don't think about the truth. Just think about what works. Think about what might make things better immediately. Again, in the warning here for us would be clear when Satan makes evil appear good. And good for that sake to appear evil. Be careful. Beware when you're tempted to sacrifice your principles for pragmatism. Think about living before marriage. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Ephesians 5.3 says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. You don't want, you don't want to be a, a hint. Of, you don't want to get close. You want other people wondering, are you being sexually pure? 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. But Satan says, yeah, but it works. To, forget the principles. It works to live together. I mean, everybody's doing it. It's going to be financially. You're going to be better off financially. I mean, we're, we're living in 2022 after all. Don't get wrapped up in what God... Did God really say? You know? And he makes evil look good. Think about abortion. The Bible says that life is made in God's image. Science tells us that the fertilized egg is a distinct person living in a womb created just for the baby. From conception, from the time of conception... That child has all the DNA to become the child that God has made it to be. Allowing the fertilized egg to have food and oxygen and water, it will become a baby and then a toddler and then a teen. And if it survives the teen years, eventually it'll become an adult. Satan says, oh, but don't think about the principles of the authority of God and life made in God's image. Think about How will this child affect your life? Think about suffering that may be experienced. And and isn't it important 
not to ever suffer. Let's talk about suffering for a moment. The Bible says, consider pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. James 1, 2. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 6, to suffering people, suffering under persecution of Nero, I believe it is, um, uh, in all this you greatly rejoice, Peter writes, though... Now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter, who not long after writing this, will be himself martyred. These have come so that the proven genuine of your faith, he says, of greater worth than gold, which perishable, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says... For the joy that lay before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In in other words, the Bible says for Christians, suffering is not the worst thing. We should consider it great joy when we suffer because it makes us like Christ. The worst thing is not being like Christ. The worst thing is being distant from God. The worst thing is having an undeveloped character. Sin is the worst thing. And God uses suffering to make us more like Christ. On the other hand, Satan says, oh, suffering is the worst. You got to avoid suffering. Suffer at all costs. I mean, suffering. If if you're not happy in life, then what's worth living? Avoid suffering at all costs. It, it, It is just wrong for people to have to suffer. Don't consider it pure joy when you suffer, Satan would say. Suffer rob you of life and joy. Jesus says that's a lie. The third lie of Satan is minimize your sin. It won't hurt anyone. Your sin won't hurt anyone. Remember James 1, 14. It says, no, sin does lead to death. But each of you is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived. James sin says sin gives birth to death. Don't minimize sin and don't minimize how much it will hurt, not just you, but other people. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 sold a piece of property and brought it to the church and lied about it. They said that they were giving all the proceeds from the selling of the property. And Peter says, you didn't have to lie about it. You could have just said you were bringing part of it. He says, Ananias. Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? After it was sold, wasn't it your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And great fear came on all who heard. What's the big deal? Why do Ananias and Sapphira get capital punishment for lying about their offering? It's not even just because they lied to God. It was because uh, this is the beginning of the church and the catastrophic impact that this lie could have had as an example 
to the whole rest of the church. But it says as a result of God's making clear about his sovereignty, his holiness, great fear came on all who heard. They took God seriously. Satan was going to try to take out the church by convincing it that sin doesn't affect many people. Sin's not a big deal. God made it really clear this sin affected Ananias. It affected the whole church. How many times did it happen? How many times have you known somebody dies and so many people are affected, somebody falls into sin, and the ripple effects are so far beyond what that person never could have thought? Some person commits suicide. And so many people that they never probably would have ever thought about. So many people are hurt and burdened because we're also connected to each other. Satan whispers, if you do this thing, no one will know. And if you, even if somebody knows, it's not, they're not going to get that hurt by it. It's not true. And in our lucid moments, we know it's not true. So the Bible is clear. Satan is a liar. He's come to kill and destroy. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, though, says we must take every thought and make it captive to be obedient to Christ. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, listen carefully what I said last time. Politics and culture run downstream from religion. There are only two ways of thinking, biblical thinking and satanic lies. There is biblical, let's be honest, there's no third category. We either think like God or what's the other way of thinking? It's believing Satan's lies. Again, that's why in the Ten Commandments it says, God says you have no other gods before me. We either take every thought captive to Christ and every thought that is not taken captive to Christ is taken captive to Satan's deception. So while we're out of time, and I want to talk about this a little bit more in the future, there are three books that I would encourage you to consider, two especially. The third one, if you want to really plow through. The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. It's not a large, long book, but Engaging Contemporary Claims. Um, Love is Love. The gay rights movement is the new civil rights movement. Women's rights are human rights. Transgender women are women. And there's a chapter on a loving call to arms. There's a chapter on Black Lives Matter. Rebecca McLaughlin would encourage thinking on that. A Strange New World by Carl Truman has been highly recommended to me. And then, um, again, uh, it's a... Great book on to stimulate thinking um, how not to be secular. And part of the observation that he's making in this book is that we are living in unique times. Every other time, every other generation has had some kind of um, theological. uh, um, memory. Every generation, even generations that have been influenced by the secular, have at least had a memory of a world that believes in God or gods. 
throughout the centuries, it was paganism, right? But at least, but nobody could imagine a world without God that our, that our purpose and that our, our, our identity and that our morality comes from some supreme being or beings. He's making the argument that we're living in a generation that's not just secular, which means we, a generation where man is the end of all things, but we're actually living in a generation, moving into a generation where the idea that man can live without God, that man does not need God for morality, man does not need God for meaning, God, man does not need God for purpose and love and hope. The idea of living in that kind of culture, it's the first time perhaps in history where we're going to be moving into a culture that doesn't either, that doesn't come out of some kind of religious culture. That in the last generation, what's been happening is that the, that the primary influencers on our culture, meaning education, entertainment, uh, philosophy, um, that they live with a secular mindset that you can live without God. And now we're raising up a generation that has grown up in a culture that can imagine life without God. There's never been a world like that before. And so he's talking about what's it like to live in this kind of unique culture like never before. So again, it may not be for everybody, but um, it's stimulating for me. And so I leave that with you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we need you to walk with us. We want to think your thoughts for your glory and be your people in this generation. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Thanks. Till next time.